Wonderful. Let's turn to God's word now, and we're going to turn to Job chapter 2, and Munze is going to read that for us. Okay, so that's Job chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. This is God's word. Very good. Thank you, everyone. Um, Just to say, if any of you were here last night and heard a little bit about the London Project, which I'm involved with at the present time. If you'd like to know more, we have a, a launch publication. I have a number of these, not lots, because I couldn't really carry very many on the bookstore. So if you'd like it, you're welcome to take a look. And if it's of help to you, or you'd have an interest in it for one reason or another, um, enjoy. Please pray uh, for the church in London and, and for the London Project. We'd, we'd appreciate that. Um, let's pray together, shall we, as we come again to this word. Father in heaven, um, we again just uh, want to tremble at your word and uh, submit our minds and our hearts and our will uh, to what you have to say to us today and in this time now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, so the, the London Project has its origins in um, the ministry of Redeemer Church in New York and Tim Keller and others. We don't get a lot of his time Particularly, he's doing lots of things, as you can imagine, but from time to time, we get opportunities to talk with him. And he shared just quite recently that um, how his uh, battle with cancer is going. Some of you may know he has stage four pancreatic cancer. He's written about that quite publicly in The Atlantic and elsewhere. So, humanly speaking, short of a miracle, that cancer will kill him. Uh, The average life expectancy is just under a year and um, he's ministering now sort of 18, 19 months into that and probably working as hard as the rest of us, which is a miracle in and of itself. But in one of the conversations that we had as he was sort of updating us on news, he said, I want to tell you this, that cancer is one of the best things that has happened to me. And he said, and I have to ask you to believe me when I say that, because there's, he said, there are very few things that have, that have ministered to me as much as that diagnosis, because it has... Uh, focused his attention that actually this life is the cover page and eternity is the book and that uh, whatever uh, 
uh, he does in the remaining months and years that he has now that um, he needs to prayerfully submit it to God's will and uh, be led by the Lord. And he's been humbled, he would say, in a, in a healthy way by something that is devastating news humanly to receive, isn't it? That, that you have something that will probably kill you within a year. Um, so pray for Tim and for Kathy. They get lots of opportunities to talk both on media and, um, and, and with friends. And uh, he can't really go out and about and speak. He's, he's pretty much self-isolating while he has his treatments. Um, but by God's grace, he's been a tremendous example to many, uh, including those of us on the team, as, as he talks us through what's, what's going on. Um, so, yeah, we appreciate that very much. So we're going to turn to this theme of um, weakness in the form of physical suffering, hence our reading from Job that we've just had uh, a moment or two ago. We're going to look a little bit at 2 Corinthians because there are some parallels. So if you're not using a phone, if you're using a paper Bible, then um, you might want to keep a thumb in uh, 2 Corinthians 12 from earlier, but also just have that Job 2 um, available as well. Well, we've been saying it all the way along, but someone, a theologian, said this, whatever you wanted for your life, if you're a Christian, you may well have assumed God wants it for you as well. Isn't that how it works? I have a plan for my life. Now, God, I really want you to back my plan because the plan I've created is an amazing plan. And would you just, would you really put all your energies into my plan, please? Um, We just think we've got a plan and we need God uh, to bless it. And then this writer goes on to say, um, whatever you wanted for your life, uh, you might not admit it to yourself, but you're pretty sure God was going to sweep down and provide it for you. The problem is what you assumed was not necessarily what happened. So we're going to think about disappointments tomorrow, for example. What you assumed was not necessarily what happened. Nobody ever grew up thinking, I'm going to get cancer at 41. I'm going to get fired at 57. Nobody ever planned to be divorced twice by 45 or alone and depressed at the age of 35. No one thought that their child would end up in prison at age 20. You never imagined you wouldn't physically be able to have children. You never imagined you'd get stuck in a dead-end job. You never imagined the word that might be best describe your marriage would be mediocre. But it happened. And you're frustrated. Or you're hurt. Or you're furious or all of the above, and everyone else is living the dream. They are happy and fulfilled. They're tasting heaven on earth, everyone but you. And that's why we need, as a church community, or in our church communities, to be open to these kind of conversations, because that's the lie that Satan wants to reinforce. Everyone's having a good time except you, and that's one of the ways in which Satan can work to undermine our faith and our church. The problem of pain. Well, the problem of pain, clearly for someone who's not a Christian, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um, George Bernard Shaw once said, how are atheists produced? In probably nine cases out of ten, something happens like this. A beloved wife or child or sweetheart is gnawed to death by cancer, stultified by epilepsy, struck dumb and helpless by apoplexy, or strangled by croup or diphtheria. And so Shaw suggests the onlooker, after praying vainly to God to refrain from such horrible and wanton cruelty, indignantly repudiates faith in the divine monster and becomes not merely indifferent and sceptical, but fiercely and actively hostile 
to religion. So that's sure on how he thinks atheists are produced. The problem with pain, of course, is a problem for Christians too, but it works a little bit differently for us. And that's why I think atheists are intrigued by people like Tim Keller and what he's saying about his cancer, because surely this is the time to jettison your faith. This is the time to, to cash in and get on with living the short time that you have left for yourself. And it's an opportunity for witness, therefore. But the Christian has a problem too. Our problem is not that Christians might fall ill or suffer. Our problem is reconciling those things with the knowledge that God is loving and God is sovereign. So, you know, how does cancer fit into that? God is loving and God is sovereign. We know these things about God to be true, and yet we're trying to draw a line from our theology of God to our experience of life, and we can't quite draw the line between the two. We don't see how these things work. We believe God is in control and that he loves us, so why suffering? Ours is a different question, but equally challenging. Christopher Ashe, who's written a couple of really super books on the book of Job, uh, one is a sli slightly thinner book and, and a good place to start. Just Google it and you'll find it. Christopher Ashe says, it's not just that it hurts, it's more than this. It's the conviction that it's God who's doing the hurting. Yeah, that's the, that's the problem of pain for the believer. It's not just that it hurts, but God's doing the hurting. How, what? How? Why would he do that? No wonder that when we suffer in this way, we find ourselves perplexed. So some Christians try and resolve it by maybe denying that God stands behind the suffering. Oh, this is Satan. It's not God, it's Satan. Or putting it down to just life in a fallen world to try and excuse God. Or maybe using something called open theism, which is the idea that, well, God's in control of the big picture, his ultimate plan, he's, but not in the details. So God is as surprised as you when you fall ill with these kind of things. And Christopher Ash writes of a, uh, a suffering believer in a way the deepest question Job faces is this. Is God for me or against me? I mean, what would you think by the end of chapter 2 of Job? Is God for me? Or against me? Well, his wife's not so sure that God is for him, is she? By the end of chapter 2. And Christopher Ash writes, ultimately nothing else matters. The book of Job is a believer wrestling with suffering. And the question that's being addressed, is God for me, even in my suffering? Can I really hold on to faith at a time like this? Can he be loving and sovereign and allow his people to suffer? That's what the church in Ukraine we'll be wrestling with for many months and maybe years to come. And in both of our passages, 2 Corinthians 12 and Job 2, we find the similar kind of issues going on between trying to understand how this works. And so I've written down those five points on the first page of the handout because they occur in both stories. They're there in uh, what we saw earlier, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, they're also there in Job chapter 2. So really quickly, you don't want to spend long on them. We could come back to these or when Matt gets around to preaching Job, he'll, he'll return to these things. But um, we see firstly that God's servant is blameless. Now, blameless doesn't mean without sin, okay? So when the Bible uses that kind of language of being in the Psalms, you talk about a righteous person in the Psalms. That doesn't mean a perfect person. It just means someone who's seeking to live God's way. So a Christian who is uh, seeking to live for Jesus, the Bible would, would call 
blameless or righteous in that sense, not perfect, okay? It doesn't mean sinless, but in a right relationship with God. So neither man, Paul or Job, has any reason to fear that he's being punished for sin. So they're wrestling with what's happening to them, the thorn in the flesh, this sort of physical affliction that we saw in chapter 2 of Job. They're wrestling with them, but not because they think God is punishing them, because they know they're walking with God and they're seeking to live for Jesus. In both stories, we realize, though, that part of the problem with pain is that it's not only God who's involved, but in some mysterious sense that I'm not sure we'll ever really understand this side of heaven, uh, Satan is also involved. So do you notice in both stories, God is at work and Satan is at work in and through the same thing at the same time to different ends. And if you can fully understand that, you're doing much better than me. So can I sit with you at lunch and would you mind explaining it to me? Okay. So both this kind of, it was given to me. Do you remember that? I was given this thorn and then it was a messenger of Satan. Job chapter two, um, God allows or gives permissions to Satan to act against Job in Job chapter 2. But, crucially, the Lord is absolutely supreme. So there's nothing that Satan can do to God's people without divine consent. So this much you can do and no more. And you see it a lot in the book of Revelation as well. You know, you can do this, but you can't do that. Okay, God is in control, and God is working out his good but in ways that are really strange and mysterious to us as Christians. Because it's true that the Lord gives what we might call terrible permissions. What the Lord allows his servants to go through, you know, Job's body covered in boils and everything that's happened to his family and his livestock in chapter 1, if you know that as well, look back at Job chapter 1 another time, are terrible, humanly speaking. You know, where is your God would be the cry of the skeptic. Just as where is your God is the, is the cry of when Jesus is on the cross. You know, that's the ultimate mystery, isn't it? Jesus is on the cross. Why? Well, because of human will and human desire of those who opposed God, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Romans, gathering, conspiring together, Judas's betrayal, Satan at work entering into Judas that he might betray him, and yet behind it all, over it all, stands God who has an ultimate purpose. But those other agents in the story are real actors on the stage, fulfilling their heart's desires. Where is your God? was the cry of the, of the crowds when Jesus was being crucified. They didn't understand. The Lord was giving a terrible permission to work out the salvation of his people. And sometimes what God allows his uh, servants to go through lasts for some years, if not a lifetime. Must, God must have a greater purpose for your life and mine than our immediate personal pleasure. A friend of mine works in a, a, a country quite a long way from here. He works with the City to City Network. He says, I think right now about 40 of our pastors are in prison. And they're in a country where you go to prison without trial, without representation. You're just taken away from your family and your family don't hear from you until maybe the government decides to let you out again. That's, that's the way it is. 40, he said, I think we're up to about 40. And this is a guy whose own father was in prison by the authorities there and yet he's still working the gospel. And you have to say, well, a sovereign Lord is allowing that. You know, it's, it's part of his will 
God must have a greater purpose for our lives than our immediate personal happiness. God, the Lord gives terrible, terrible permissions. And fifthly, finally, for both Paul and for Job, God's servant grows in grace by trusting God. Again, following the supreme example of our Lord Jesus, Paul and Job both discover that their faith is not only proved, but strengthened and grows through adversity. James chapter 1, consider it joy. You know, when you suffer trials, why, why would you, anyone, why? Because God has a purpose to grow you into Christ-likeness. So let's look at um, these things in a little bit more detail, but I hope you just note those parallels and you can study them if you're not uh, studying uh, Dane Ortland or whoever else it might be um, in your mornings another time. So turn over the page and to these, uh, these passages. So back again briefly to suffering who's to blame. 2 Corinthians, then we're going to go to suffering, who's in control from Job 2, and then going to try and bring it all together briefly. What is God trying to do through um, our sufferings there um, towards, the, towards the end? So we said earlier before the coffee, um, we don't know quite what the thorn was in Paul's flesh. Probably a physical ailment, an infirmity. Do you remember the Galatians chapter 4? You'd have given us your eyes if you could. So maybe it was this sort of physical eyesight issue. Um, but we know is that the thorn is attributed by Paul in his testimony to God himself. It was given to me, and then it was given for a purpose, which was to humble me, to stop me being conceited. So only God would do that. In other words, if someone gives you something so that you won't sin, you can trust the author of that, of that gift to be God, can't you? It was given to keep me uh, from sin. But it's also a messenger of Satan, verse 7. So Don Carson writes, Paul, no doubt, Paul has no doubt that his thorn in the flesh is simultaneously a messenger of Satan and something that God himself sent Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. It's extremely important that we come to terms with these ambiguities, Carson says. If we do not, we'll constantly be assigning this little bit of our life and circumstances exclusively to the devil and some other little bit exclusively to God. No, we have to understand two agents at work for very different purposes, but God's sovereign overall. So our Christian life needs to have, in other words, a theology of suffering. And we draw on these kind of texts and passages to help us because it builds our framework around which what's going on in my life and circumstances can kind of sit, where we can say to ourselves, well, I don't understand what's going on, but I know it's not this, and I know it's not that, because that would take me outside of Scripture, okay? It's that kind of thing that we're wrestling with. If we're Christians, we need to understand that the Christian life is a struggle against spiritual forces that are at work against Christians. Ephesians 6, finally be strong. In the Lord and in his mighty power, verse 10, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, verse 13, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. So here's the, the first big lesson there under point A. When it comes to the experience of weakness, whatever form it takes, note 
that there are two forces at work. Satan is our enemy. He's going to seek to exploit you. He's going to target your weaknesses. He wants you to doubt God's love. Don't be surprised when those thoughts enter your head. Someone is acting upon those impulses. Like a little crack in a door, he wants to put his foot in and push it, pull it and get it open. Is God for me, you'll say. And his is the first voice that you may hear. It might be. Which is why you need this theology of suffering before the moment, not in the crisis. He's going to seek to exploit and target. He wants you to doubt. And so when you're reminded of your weaknesses or your limitations, he wants you then to grumble against God. That's what he wants you to do. When adversity turns to self-pity, he wants to think that you're all alone. He wants you to never talk to anyone about your struggle with sin. You mustn't, whatever you do, talk about internet pornography to anyone. It's your battle and you'll keep losing. But don't tell anyone. That's Satan. You're alone in your weakness, he says. Stay alone. So to understand the suffering, that the suffering has a potential to push you away from God. That's what you need to understand. Because Satan, that's his objective. Push you away in your weakness. Push you away from the church. I've seen that happen a number of times where people have been battling an issue and the first instinct is to stop going to church pull back from christians keep the bible closed they feel shame they feel guilt they think that's the place i can't go i won't go and satan says this is great this is what i want cut off your oxygen supply keep you away from god's people make sure you can't tell anyone pray with anyone talk about it ever again in your suffering there are two agents satan is trying to do something See, it can push you away from God, and that's why we need each other. And the culture within the church that says this is a safe place to talk about weakness. If our church culture says, no, 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 that's, look, you have to look sorted to be here. No one's ever going to say that, but if the culture says it, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast and all of that kind of stuff. If the culture says, never talk about weakness, then Satan thinks I'm winning here. So we have to create that culture, and you can talk about that as yourselves, and just even having it as a theme for a weekend, hearing the stories we've already heard, will hopefully help invite you to be ready to recognize it's an enemy's strategy to keep you silent. Two voices, two forces, competing for your attention. God at work in our suffering to one end, Satan at work in our suffering to another. God uses our suffering to draw us near to him, Satan will use our weaknesses to draw us away. That's where we need to turn to our second point, to the book of Job and our suffering, who's in uh, control. So do, do turn there now. Um, if you've closed that, I can't give you a page number. That doesn't work. Those days are long gone, aren't they? So in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, um, This man Job was blameless and upright, he feared God and shunned evil. So Christopher Ash says of Job, he's a true worshipper. He's blameless, which doesn't mean he's perfect, but he has integrity. His life is of one piece, says Christopher Ash. He's walking with the Lord and trying to live 
for him. So that's really important, chapter 1, verse 1. And then we see everything stripped away and taken away from him in the rest of that chapter. So there are enemy raiders who come and uh, destroy his livestock and uh, take away um, everything that he has. And yet Satan can still say in chapter 2, yeah, the only reason that he's not cursed you, uh, Lord, is because I haven't had permission to go after the man yet. So that's the only reason, uh, skin for skin, he says. If he starts to suffer, he'll turn his back on you. That's the argument that Satan's using uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 2. He's been roaming throughout the earth, looking for an opportunity. The Lord says to Satan, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan's response, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, okay, very well, you have permission. You may attack, but you must spare his life. Now, these are deep waters. This is mysterious. Don't ask me to fully understand everything that the Lord is allowing Satan to do in this window of time um, that we still have here on earth before he is ultimately um, destroyed um, when the Lord Jesus returns. But Satan's convinced that Job will curse him. He believes that Job doesn't really love God. He's just using God in some way. But Satan is wrong. And, uh, and Job continues to worship. He will not give up on his faith. Even though he's covered in boils and sores, verse 7, from the soles of his feet to the tops of his head. Job's wife suggests, why don't you abandon your belief in an all-loving God, verse 9. But even in his suffering, Job holds on, verse 10. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job is suffering, but his suffering is going to be purposeful because he trusts that God is loving and God is good and God is in control. So I don't know what's going on in your circumstance and situation in life, how this battle is being fought within your own experience between what Satan is seeking and what God is doing. But there's great encouragement for us, isn't there? That if you're God's, then he will keep you because he is in control and his purpose will always prevail. That's a great encouragement for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, we read, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God is sovereign. Matthew Henry writes, There is no valley so dark, but God can find a way through it. No affliction so grievous, but he can prevent or remove or enable us to support it, and in the end, overrule it to our advantage. God will use it. And finally, point three, suffering, what good, what is God trying to do? So Job, throughout the whole book, he's still seeking an answer. So he's trusting God, he has no answer, he doesn't know what God's purposes are, 
but he believes in a sovereign God who is for him and not against him. But he's seeking an answer. And the rest of the book is really a story of a whole number of Job's friends who tried to tell him, the answer is your sin. It can't be uh, that God has a purpose. You need to repent, find that hidden sin, confess it, and all will be well. They can't understand how God will work through suffering in his righteous servants. And even Job, by the time you get now, look, turn on to pay, uh, chapter 38, by the time you move on in the book, even as the book is coming to its close, Job discovers that the answer that he finds is not the one that he wants. So I've given you some verses. We're not going to study all of those, but Job 38, 1 to 11, 40, verses 1 to 5, and so on. But the Lord speaks in Job 38, not to give him answers, but to give him a reassurance. To show him that he knows what he's doing. Gary Benfold writes, God speaks to Job about his own greatness and forces Job to confront his ignorance and littleness. Verse 2 of chapter 38, who is this? The Lord says of Job, who is this that obscures my plans and with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, I will answer you, and you, uh, sorry, question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Where, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And so on, and so on, and so on. And throughout 38, 39, and 40, God asked Job questions that he can't even begin to answer. And what God is doing is reminding Job that he's in control and that he is God and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher, greater than ours. And ultimately, perhaps for Job in this life, there will be no final answer. God is God and we are not but his purposes stand. So Christopher Rash writes, one core question in the book has been whether or not the cosmos is properly run, whether or not the God in charge deserves to be in charge, or whether he ought to be sacked or impeached for running it badly. And so the answer focuses also on God as the creator who laid the foundations of the earth and who put the whole thing together. Now, please don't think that God is belittling your suffering by just saying to you, look, I'm God, you're not, just accept it, okay? Please don't think that God is belittling you when you read these kind of passages, because in one sense, that's what we might think, is God's just saying, look, be quiet, I know what I'm doing, I don't need to explain it to you. It's very easy to think God is belittling or minimizing your pain and distress. But I think he's answering in this way, um, still to teach us. One day we will fully understand, but Don Carson says everything that takes place in God's universe is not, we're not able to understand now. Some things are hidden from view. And Carson says there are some things you will not understand for you are not God. And so by the time we reach chapter 40, Job's response is the response of a faithful servant who humbles himself. And Job reaches the point where he says, verse 40 and verse 4, 
I put my hand over my mouth. I mean, if we could fully understand God, he'd, he'd be reduced to our size, wouldn't he? The very point of God being God is that he's beyond us. I put my hand over my mouth. He's learning to trust God with the things that he can't understand. And we can worship and trust him even when we don't. So suffering takes us to a whole new level of trust. Do you see? Because it's beyond your ability to understand. It's a deep, deep level of trust. Joni Erickson Tarder broke her neck. You might know the story in a diving accident when she was about 17. I think maybe had just turned 18. She was a teenager, and the result of diving into a pool where the waters were shallower than she realized was that in breaking her neck, she was paralyzed, a quadriplegic, for the rest of her life. That's over 50 years ago now, 50 years in a wheelchair. And in the months that followed, the immediate response was, she says, anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, doubts about God. But over time, she's come to accept what she cannot understand as being from God's own hand for her good. And she's lived the most extraordinary life. Speaking on platform after platform of the goodness of God, even in the face of suffering. But more recently, she's been diagnosed with breast cancer. And you think, goodness me, how can one person be asked to endure so much? But this is what she had to say about that diagnosis. She talks about her, she's married and she talks about uh, her husband and she says, he and I are so grateful for the disability, for the pain, and yes, in a strange way, even for the cancer, although I am far from being declared cancer-free. All of these things help us stay hungry for the bread of heaven. They help us stay thirsty for the living water. Suffering keeps waking us up out of any spiritual slumber we might find ourselves in. And then she says this. She says, suffering is the textbook that keeps teaching us who we really are. We are not the paragons of virtue that we would like to think we are. No, we are sinners in need of redemption each and every day. So she would say, thank you, Lord, for helping me to walk closely to you because I have nowhere else to go. And in that sense, that's why a man like Tim Keller can say, thank you for cancer. Because there's not much that can bring you to an end of yourself like that. And Paul, like Job, like Joni, like you, like me, are learning to trust. It's never easy. But at least for Paul and for you and for me, we live this side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, don't we? So we've got a more complete answer to suffering than Job could have known. We don't have all the answers, but we have so much more. Job had to trust a sovereign God, but we trust a sovereign God who has suffered for us and stands alongside us, therefore, in our sufferings, Christ 2 Corinthians 13, was crucified in weakness. Isn't that interesting that it's there at the end of this long letter to Corinthians, which is all about weakness, that Paul ends in chapter 13 by saying this of Jesus, Christ was crucified in weakness. 
Paul knew not only that God was sovereign, but that God's grace was sufficient. And that just as Jesus trusted God in Gethsemane, and through his death, we can too. John Stott has this to say, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. See, if you think that's what Job had to do, didn't he? Anyone before the time of Jesus had to believe in God without the cross. Stott says what I think I might say, which is I'm not sure I could in the face of that kind of suffering apart from the cross. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in, Stott says, is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have turned away, and in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding with thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. And Stott says, that is God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, Stott says. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ, he says, is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. Other gods were strong, but our God is weak. No other God has wounds, but Christ and him alone. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to hold on to this knowledge that you love us and that you are for us, even though at times you give these terrible permissions. And our assurance that you are for us in this way is all the greater as we look upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say, this is our God. You are not immune from our pain. You are not distantly looking down, but that you join with us. And even on the throne itself of heaven for all eternity will be a lamb who was slain. So thank you for the, giving us the courage and the confidence today to hear your voice over above the voice of Satan, the voice of the world that is so dismissive of suffering. And we thank and ask that you would work your good and pleasing purposes through us and through our pain. In Jesus' name, amen.